Today on Peace Talks Radio, two instances where peace broke out right on the field of battle. Once at Christmas time, in the midst of brutal trench warfare of World War I. When the Germans uh, began to actually light the candles on their little trees, uh, the British wondered what it was, what was going on. Some of them crept closer through the mud. Uh, the Germans crawled out too. Uh, and the troops met each other. How are your trenches? Terrible. Not fit for pigs. When it rains, we're up to our knees in mud and water. Aren't you sick of the war? And also a report on a peace jubilee at the Manassas battlefield from the U.S. Civil War. You can't really celebrate such a bloody war. You can celebrate the peace jubilee. You can celebrate people coming together and those veterans meeting again in their dotage to hold hands, to put their arms around each other. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. We also look at great peacemakers and peace moments from throughout history and today. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we spotlight two instances when peace broke out right on the field of battle. Later, we'll hear a report on a peace jubilee at the Manassas battlefield, scene of brutal engagements during the U.S. Civil War. One peace jubilee that took place in 1911 was commemorated on its 100th anniversary in 2011. But first, the impromptu but widespread unofficial Christmas truce of 1914 in the early months of fighting in Europe in World War I, when soldiers from both sides essentially said, war is hell, let's not do it near Christmas Day. To tell us that story, we have Stanley Weintraub, historian, professor emeritus from Penn State University, biographer, and author of many books, including Silent Night, The Christmas Truce of 1914. He joins us from his home in Delaware. Dr. Weintraub, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you. You start your book, Silent Night, the story of the World War I Christmas Truce, by saying firmly that this Christmas truce was no myth, as your book cites letter upon letter upon letter and later written memoirs and novels written by participants and drawings and photographs. And you were able to find such a rich vein of detailed evidence to draw from in working on this. Where did you have to go to find most of this evidence? I had to go to England and to Germany. Uh, in England, uh, I had to go to the Imperial War Museum for documents and, uh, uh, and official uh, papers and uh, rare books. And I had to go to the newspaper library in Collendale in North London uh, to look up letters that were sent by uh, servicemen to their local hometown newspapers. Uh, This was a period before censorship. And this was such a shocking, amazing event to soldiers uh, that they wrote home to their parents and to their wives and girlfriends uh, saying, you won't believe what just happened to us uh, and what's going on over here. Uh, one of them wrote, it was like a waking dream, uh, totally unexpected. Mm-hmm. I know it's kind of basic history, but let's remind listeners of the where and the who of this event. Now, approaching Christmas time, 1914, describe the place and the principles assembled there. Uh, there was war going on between Germany uh, and Belgium, France, and England uh, that was largely focused upon the area uh, in Flanders. 
which is lowland close to the English Channel in the North Sea. Uh, yet the fighting went on uh, south all the way to Switzerland, uh, several hundred miles uh, of uh, trench warfare at that point. What had happened is that uh, when the war began in August 1914, uh, it was first a war of great movement. Uh, the Germans, by surprise, overwhelmed the Belgians and overwhelmed the French. The, the British sent troops in across the English Channel. Uh, but the Germans were driven back a bit, uh, and the war settled down into a stalemate. Uh, when it became a stalemate and the weather became bad in the late fall, uh, the troops began to dig trenches and hold their places. Uh, it largely became uh, a war of uh, uh, trenches uh, between the English Channel and Switzerland. And opposing sides were often just yards apart, isn't that right? They were often only yards apart, perhaps uh, 75 yards apart, uh, which isn't much when you think in terms of a football field being 100 yards. Therefore, they were very close. They were also very uncomfortable. The trenches filled with water. Uh, they put down wooden planks when they could. Uh, there were rats infesting the trenches. Uh, the rats fed on the dead. Uh, the dead were in what we called no man's land uh, between the two sides. Uh, so the, the area between the two sides was close. Uh, it was also a terrible, smelly, uh, awful mess. And you said cold rain had made the conditions especially dreadful. You quote this German artist, Otto Dix, describing this in list form. I thought I'd read it. He wrote, Lice, rats, barbed wire, fleas, shells, bombs, underground caves, corpses, blood, liquor, mice, cats, artillery, filth, bullets, mortars, fires, steel. And then you yourself add, the details about this liquefying mud that would pull anyone down if they stood still. Uh, it was dreadful largely because the land was lowland. Uh, yeah. Some of it was actually below sea level uh, and got filled in by farmers uh, in order to be able to uh, use the land to grow crops. Uh, but at this point, uh, there were no crops. Uh, in fact, there were no trees. There were no plants or any other kind of vegetation that had been shot away or worn away by war. And so there was nothing to hold the ground together. It was just liquefying mud. Right. So approaching Christmas time, then, uh, the conditions are especially dreadful. And before we get into some of the details of what happened here, let me have you sum up what Christmas meant to each of the sides in this conflict. Yeah. Uh, many people think of Christmas in the Dickensian sense of um, uh, a Christmas carol. Uh, but Christmas really began as far as uh, a family event was concerned in Germany. Uh, the Germans uh, had small tabletop Christmas trees. Uh, they put the Christmas trees out. Uh, this was in the early 19th century, the early 1800s. They would put the Christmas trees out on tables, and e each member of the family had his own tree, and under the tree would be the gifts. The problem in uh, a family Christmas of this sort, which was uh, very homey and uh, friendly, uh, was that the British couldn't bring trees across the English Channel uh, to the uh, place where war was going on. Uh, but the Germans, uh, who were close by land uh, to the front lines, could actually bring uh, trains and trucks and wagons 
and bring small trees to the front lines. Uh, this was to bring morale up in their troops who were mired in this muck that we've been talking about. It sounds like there was some fraternization from afar, in a way, between the sides in the weeks before Christmas. Uh, because they were so close, as we've been talking about, uh, they could shout to each other, they could call each other names, uh, they even got to know the first names of troops across the way. Uh, and on occasion, uh, they uh, fraternized a little more than that. On one occasion, the Germans uh, called out, were. Uh, we're having a uh, party for uh, our commanding officer. Uh, if you stop firing during the party, we'll send you over a cake. And they sent over a cake. Uh, this is the kind of fraternization uh, that goes on when the enemies are close by and when the enemies culturally are akin to you. Uh, in World War II, for example, we couldn't have had fraternization of that sort with the Japanese uh, because we spoke different uh, languages had different cultures, uh, it would have been impossible. Uh, the Germans, on the other hand, knew English. Many of the Germans had actually worked in England. They worked as uh, as barbers, they, they worked as uh, uh, wagon drivers, and so on, uh, and they knew English. And they were called back to Germany when the war began. Uh, so even if the English didn't know much German, the Germans knew a great deal of English. Uh, the uh, kind of uh, fraternization or ceasefires that went on earlier uh, are recorded as far back as uh, Homer's Iliad. Uh, to bury the dead, for example, uh, there were often ceasefires uh, merely to bury the dead or to pray to the gods, uh, and uh, this would be a small period of time, and then they would begin fighting again. Uh, so this was the more, most extended ceasefire in the history of war, and it extended for more than Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. In some places, it extended until New Year's Day. Yeah. Well, in these early bits of fraternization, it was happening enough that the generals had to issue memos discouraging it, it seemed. Uh, they issued memos discouraging it. They uh, threatened uh, court-martials for people who uh, were involved in it. There was never a court-martial in 1914 about the Christmas truce on either side. Uh, it was so uh, prevalent, uh, uh, it there was so much of it, that it would have been impossible uh, to uh, create discipline through uh, the use of uh, a court-martial. About a week ahead of Christmas proper, according to these stories, there was a brief cooperative truce around a German trench concert. Can you tell that story? Th this is the sort of thing, by the way, that happened not just in this war, uh, I did write a book about the Civil War uh, called General Sherman's Christmas, another book that had Christmas in it. Uh, and in that war, uh, in the Civil War, the troops again were close at one point, and the Confederates said, uh, we have a trumpeter who's better than any trumpeter you have. Uh, uh, if you stop firing, we'll let you hear him. And uh, they had a contest of trumpeters. Uh, which sounds very weird, but it was a temporary ceasefire. And again, th these were people who were culturally close and knew each other's language and knew each other's songs. Uh, the Germans uh, did the same thing. They wanted to have a concert, and they said, if you stop uh, firing, uh, you'll be able to listen to our concert. And the troops nearby, and of course this was one small sector, uh, actually did so. 
But during the truce itself, uh, it became uh, such a spontaneous and widespread event uh, that the Germans sent uh, one member of the uh, general staff who was a singer in the Berlin Opera out to sing uh, Silent Night across the trenches. And uh, the French, uh, who claimed that they hated the Germans and wouldn't have any ceasefire of any sort, uh, sent a tenor from the Paris Opera, and he sang O Holy Night, Cantique de Noël, across the trenches. Uh, So the idea of uh, we can do better than you can do uh, with Christmas songs uh, continued that uh, business of uh, of, uh, music across the enemy lines. Here's how that more friendly musical competition was portrayed in the film Joya Noel from 2005. In this adaptation, a Scottish bagpipe answers the German tenor. That story, that screenplay, was borrowed a bit from my book. Uh, the person who wrote it didn't tell me what he was doing, uh, but he wrote me a number of emails with questions as to uh, why I did what I did and so on. Uh, and uh, that turned up in the movie. Stanley Weintraub, you mentioned earlier uh, that both sides were receiving holiday gifts. Uh, you mentioned the Christmas trees that the Germans sent in uh, the English uh, were getting holiday tins of treats, not always so well received, it seems. But, but, the, but the Germans in these Christmas trees, for, for, for whom the tree was such an important symbol, were keen to display the trees. You started to talk about this earlier, but I'd like you to revisit it because it really seemed to help touch off the, the gatherings on a larger scale. Is that not right? Uh, yes. When the Germans uh, began to actually light the candles on their little trees— uh, the British wondered what it was, what was going on. Uh, and at a distance of 75 or 100 yards, they weren't sure. And some of them crept closer through the mud to see what was going on and uh, discovered that the Germans were lighting their Christmas trees. Uh, the Germans, realizing that there were troops uh, approaching them, crawled out too, uh, and the troops met each other. Uh, uh, this happened in many places along the front lines, especially in Flanders, The British uh, did not have trees, but they had something else uh, that they could show the Germans. Uh, I'm holding in my hand a a brass box uh, that says Christmas 1914. And um, it has the head of uh, 
uh, embossed head of Princess Mary on it, the daughter of uh, King George V. The British uh, actually uh, sent over to the front lines uh, hundreds of thousands of these brass boxes. Uh, Some of them were filled with candy. Uh, Some of them had uh, tobacco. Uh, And uh, there was a campaign to get these uh, to the troops. Uh, When the Germans discovered that the British were doing this, uh, they quickly began to fabricate wooden boxes uh, with sausages and cigars and so on. Uh, And both sides, it seemed, um, as they crawled out to meet each other, had things to trade. And so there was a swapping of Christmas gifts. And this was not expected. Uh, No one thought that when you send something for your own troops' morale, uh, they would use it to swap. Uh, But these little boxes uh, did do this. Uh, So after the singing, uh, some signs went up, it sounds like, in the chronology. The signs had gone up earlier. They were so close. Uh, The the proximity was such uh, that very often uh, they would put up placards in big letters, uh, either challenging or addressing somebody on the other side. Uh, If they knew that it was someone's birthday on the other side, they would put up a happy birthday sign because they had chatted back and forth. And when they got together uh, in uh, no man's land on Christmas Eve, uh, they were not only in mucky territory, uh, but there were shell holes and there were bodies. And uh, they uh, began to think in terms of burying the dead, uh, that if they buried the dead, they might be able to get together the next day uh, and not only do that, uh, but perhaps trade gifts and some of them said and play football. Uh, football meaning our uh, soccer, uh, and they did. And this was one of the things that, uh, when I was working on the earlier book on the armistice, had been considered absolutely absurd. They couldn't possibly have played football in such circumstances uh, and in such terrain. And yet I found in the Imperial War Museum and in German documents, uh, war diaries, that is official documents, the daily reports, that not only talked about the football games, but gave the scores. The scores corroborated each other in many senses. Yes, they they did. Uh, And the result was uh, that more and more of what had been called a myth turned out to be reality. We're talking to Stanley Weintraub. He is the author of many books on history, including Silent Night, the story of the World War I Christmas truce. We'll be back with more after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We have scores of programs archived online, and you can check them all out at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're recalling a rare moment in the history of warfare when troops from opposing sides, drawn by their curiosity of each other and a lack of will to fight on through Christmas, began to fraternize with their adversaries. In this case, in Flanders Field during December 1914 in World War I. Historian and author of the book Silent Night, the story of the Christmas truce of 1914, Stanley Weintraub is telling us the tale. And Dr. Weintraub, you unearthed many letters and artifacts proving this rather widespread fraternizing. And I'm wondering if you would, for us, read uh, this one letter that you quoted starting on page 83. This is a a British officer writing. Uh, uh, More Germans had emerged between the lines, and he wrote, Things were getting a bit thick. My men were getting a bit excited. We didn't like to fire, as they were all unarmed. But we had strict orders, and someone might have fired. So I climbed over the parapet and shouted my best German for the opposing captain to appear. We met and formally saluted. He introduced himself as Count something or other, and seemed a very decent fellow. He could not talk a word of English. He then called one of his subalterns, and formally introduced them with much clicking of heels and saluting. They were all very well turned out, while I was in a goatskin coat. Uh, His point was that the the British were not nearly as well uh, outfitted as the Germans were, because the Germans had a, a land route to get more supplies, and the British did not. One of the subalterns could talk a few words of English. I said, My orders are to keep my men in the trenches and allow no armistice. Don't you think it is dangerous, all of your men running about in the open like this? Someone may open fire. He called out an order, and all his men went back to their parapet, leaving me and the five German officers and a barrel of beer in the middle of no man's land. He said, you better take the beer. We have lots. Again, you see, that's the reason the Germans had land uh, had landlines to, uh, uh, to more supplies. The British did not. So I'll continue the letter. So I called up two men to bring the barrel to our side. I didn't like to take their beer without giving something in exchange, and suddenly I had a brainwave. We had lots of plum puddings, so I sent for one and formally presented it to him in exchange for the beer. He then called out, Waiter, and a German private whipped out six glasses and two bottles of beer, and with much bowing and saluting we solemnly drank it, and cheers from both sides. Then we all formally saluted and returned to our lines. Our men had sing-songs, ditto the enemy. So this is one example of how fraternization began and the truce continued. And Stanley Weintraub, what do you feel inside when you read a letter like that? And you read so many of them. I find it hard to believe, uh, but it, because it sounds so impossible. It, was, it would have been impossible in my war, that is the Korean War. But it was possible at that time. And the preponderance of letters and diary uh, entries and so on made it clear that this really did happen, and it happened on a grand scale. Hello, Tommy. Tommy was the nickname the Germans had for the English soldiers. Here, another dramatization of the troops meeting up in the film, Oh, What a Lovely War. Alles gut, ja? Oh, ja, ja. Jetzt trinken wir Schnaps. How bloody time, too. (laughs) 
That's good stuff, Jerry. Aye, thank you very much. Better, sir. Fritz. Huh. How are you, Fritz? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. How's the Kaiser? Feutel. How do you do, Hawkins? Do you know when the war will end? After our spring offensive, I should think. It ends between the ends, I tell How are your trenches? Terrible. Not fit for pigs. When it rains, we're up to our knees in mud and water. Aren't you sick of the war? Before the war, I was staying in Suffolk. And I left there a three and one half horsepower motorcycle. And also a girl. Hey, do you hear that? This chap's got a girlfriend in Suffolk. You can send her a message telling her that, that I'm all right over here. I mean, I will write name and address for you. I suppose it's all right. Cigarette. Are you Virginian? Right, straight cut. No, nein, danke. I only smoke Turkish. Have a cigar. We will not ever shoot again. Unless you start. Do you hear that? That'll suit us, man, I can tell you. Here. We'll drink to that. That is Scottish schnapps. This is your guns that are shooting. No. Sebastian English. No us. They will not shoot at us while you are here. Don't believe that, man. It's us that are shooting at. <laughs> oh, well. Thanks very much, mate, and give my love to the comment. A clip from the film Oh, What a Lovely War, a 1969 adaptation of a 1963 British stage play. Is it true that history can place Adolf Hitler, then a German corporal, in this vicinity? Yes, he never got out to uh, to uh, uh, fraternize because he didn't believe in it. Uh, he hated the other side, and besides, he didn't believe in Christmas. Uh, so he would have nothing to do with the event, and he stayed behind. Uh, but he was with the troops that were on the front lines then. He was a, a, a messenger, a corporal and a messenger. And he was truly there, but he wouldn't go out with the other troops. Mm-hmm. So how long did it go on, and how did it come to an end? It went on in some places uh, just through Christmas. It depended on the uh, area involved and how close the people were and how pressured they felt by commanding officers to the rear. Uh, what is interesting, and the, the point is made very well in uh, the uh, film and the play, Oh, What a Lovely War, uh, is that senior officers seldom ventured toward the, the front lines. Uh, in in Korea, for example, I never saw uh, a, a person of general's rank in the front lines, though uh, I'm sure on occasion they may have gone out there. Uh, but in 1914, this would have been very rare. I found the case of only one general uh, who actually went out to the front lines to see what was going on. So that meant that the troops could do pretty much what they wanted. Uh, but when reports came back to the uh, fancy chateaus in the rear where the generals um, uh, were stationed, uh, they complained about it and they issued orders that this had to stop. And it stopped as soon as they sent replacements out uh, to uh, take the places of the troops that had fraternized. Uh, in some cases, it took a while because uh, this, this is a matter of logistics. 
uh, how do you get the troops out and get them uh, armed and ready? Uh, so in some cases, it took close to New Year's Day. Uh, and uh, in many places where the truce was about to end and the troops that had fraternized were to leave, uh, they got together, both sides got together and shook hands and traded gifts. Uh, in one case, they traded gloves and scarves. Uh, and uh, an officer, usually a young one like a lieutenant or a captain, uh, would say, uh, we'll have to begin the war again, and we'll fire in the air. And once we fire in the air, you know that our truce has to be over. And uh, they did that in a number of places. They uh, they said they shot at the sky. It gives you some idea as to uh, how the troops really did not want to fight at all. They knew they were there uh, for a purpose, and that was to win a war. It didn't make any difference to them what the war aims were on the part of the governments. Uh, they were there to fight, and they wanted to go home. Uh, the important thing was to get it over with and go home. And it is quite possible uh, that if this had spread further, that they would have gone home a lot sooner, and the war would have ended as a result of the spontaneous truce. Governments wanted the war fought. Uh, governments knew that if the war would end, they might lose their place in the regime. They might lose their power. Uh, they might lose their place uh, in society. They didn't want that. Uh, they wanted the war to continue until it ended in some way that was favorable to their side. Uh, it had nothing to do with the soldiers. They were merely uh, taking orders. This was why the war continued. Uh, in 1915, uh, two uh, British soldiers, I think they were young officers, uh, were actually court-martialed uh, for uh, continuing the truce or trying to continue the truce. They were the only ones ever court-martialed, uh, but the court-martial was uh, quashed and they were pardoned, and one of them went on to become a general later in the war, which gives you an idea how seriously it was taken. This this was not an event that was to be repeated in 1916 or 1917. Uh, the war ground on millions of dead I think the total number of dead, civilian and soldier, uh, on both the eastern and western fronts uh, approached something like 60 million by the end of the war. It's uh, hardly to be believed. Stanley Weintraub, you spent about 10 pages late in your book kind of romping through extensive what-if scenarios. What if the Christmas truce held and brought an early end to the war? From an historian's standpoint, it must have been a fun chapter to write. Uh, the one major event that would not have happened uh, if the war had ended then and ended on both fronts uh, would have been uh, that we might not have had a communist revolution in Russia because it took until 1917 for the Germans to be able to sneak uh, Vladimir Lenin into Russia to begin that revolution. And 1917, after all, is three years after the Christmas truce. So it that event might not have happened. One doesn't know uh, what would have happened if the war had ended. Uh, for example, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, later our president, was Assistant Secretary of the Navy in the U.S. during World War I. Uh, that gave him his first visibility, uh, and uh, his candidacy later on for president uh, came out of that early visibility. Uh, he would not have had any role whatever uh, in the war uh, we only went to war in April 1917. Uh, we wouldn't have been in the war. 
they're just two examples of what might have happened had we not had, if we not had the war continue. When I was working uh, on the earlier book, I mentioned the stillness heard around the world, the end of the Great War. I began the book with a line that to me is the, is the best sentence I think I ever wrote. It's, peace is harder to make than war. And that's really the story of, of this Christmas truce. Peace is harder to make than war. I borrowed the line from myself, and I used it as the, the epigraph to the book Silent Night. Uh, to me, that, that tells the whole story. And at the end of, of Silent Night, I quoted an obscure poet, Frederick Niven, the, the poet uh, who was of great war vintage but was never in the war, wrote a carol from Flanders, and it closed, O ye who read this truthful rhyme from Flanders, kneel and say, God speed the time when every day shall be as Christmas Day. And he meant as Christmas Day in peace, not uh, Christmas Day as uh, happens often in war. Mm-hmm. And from your standpoint, uh, Dr. Weintraub, why do you think this story resonates so well uh, and so um, closely with people now almost 100 years later? Uh, I think it resonates because we yearn for a time when there is greater peace uh, than we uh, than we have, uh, a time uh, when every day, as the poet said, will be like Christmas Day, a day when uh, families get together uh, when there's camaraderie, uh, when there's friendliness, when hatred vanishes. Uh, it's a utopian idea, a utopian vision, but we, we all long for it. Peace is harder to make than war, and we've certainly learned that over and over again since. How do you think these episodes of these soldiers uh, coming together uh, for the Christmas truce uh, exemplify that statement? Well, it it exemplifies uh, that we're all human beings. Uh, There was a song uh, about the Christmas truce uh, uh, written by an American uh, American folk singer in which he talks about how uh, on both sides of the rifle we're the same. And I think that tells the story. When we get close enough, uh, we realize that uh, on both ends of the rifle we're the same. The trouble is that we, we or at least governments, uh, never learn uh, from history. Uh, the lesson of the Christmas truce has vanished, as uh, all truces vanish this way, um, because peace is harder to make than war. Dr. Stanley Weintraub uh, taught many, many years at uh, Penn State and uh, is also the author of many fine books, including the just released Pearl Harbor Christmas, and we were talking earlier about his 2001-2002 book, Silent Night, the story of the World War I Christmas truce. Stanley Weintraub, thanks so much for sharing your uh, stories with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Next, the story of how former combatants of one of the key battles of the Civil War decided to meet up on their old battlefield, shake hands, and have a picnic. When Peace Talks Radio continues after this short break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes to hear online at peacetalksradio.com. You can also go there for photos, transcripts, podcasts, newsletters, and other links and resources, all at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Now to the story of another war and a peacemaking wound-healing event that happened 50 years after its end. In late April of 1865, the American Civil War was not entirely finished, even though Robert E. Lee had surrendered at Appomattox and President Lincoln had been assassinated in Washington. Tens of thousands of Union and Confederate troops in North Carolina stood ready to keep on fighting if the final negotiations between their own commanders failed. Among the war-weary Southern soldiers camped in Greensboro, North Carolina, was a young signal corpsman named David Hamilton Russell. To the east in Raleigh, a Northern Signal Corps lieutenant, George Carr Round, manned an observation post atop the state capitol building. Round, like Russell, had been a soldier since the war began, and he prayed that he would soon hear that the Confederate General Joseph Johnston and Union General William Sherman had come to terms. When that news arrived at last, on the night of April 26th, Round sent what's known as the last signal message of the Civil War, launching color-coded rockets from the Capitol Dome in Raleigh to spell out peace on earth, goodwill to men. Half a century later, in 1911, Round and Russell's life stories converged again. The result of that was the National Jubilee of Peace, the first major gathering of Civil War veterans from both sides. Steve Pendlebury has our story from the place where it happened in 1911 and was reenacted in the summer of 2011. He spoke with the reenactment planners in Manassas, Virginia. Reenactors don't always like it when I say it, but I've said for years, you know, why do we reenact the war when it's the peace that's so much more interesting, exciting, and ultimately beneficial to our children and for the generations to come? That's Ken Elston, the chairman of the George Mason University Theater Department. He wrote and directed a dramatization of the Peace Jubilee for the city of Manassas. It's a far-reaching sort of epic outdoor piece that is, you know, part theater, part spectacle, uh, part halftime show. Elston's historical theater troupe Footsteps in Time recreated the unprecedented reunion of veterans from North and South who came together in Manassas on July 21, 1911 for a celebration of peace and national unity, 50 years to the day after the first major land battle of the Civil War. With the possible exception of the Persian Wars, this is the first time in recorded history that former enemies met on the same battlefield where they once met in mortal combat to affirm peace. And that's pretty exciting. When you look at the history of the world, the U.S. is unique for a lot of reasons. One of those reasons is that we had this terrible four-year struggle of the American Civil War and came out of it a stronger nation. You know, I'm from Philadelphia, and in Philadelphia we always celebrate the birth of the nation, 1776. And it seems to me that here in Manassas, Virginia, we celebrate the rebirth of the nation. I think one of the the stories that is, you know, sometimes lost at Manassas, because the battle being the first battle grabs the nation's attention, is the story of reconciliation. It's a story Manassas National Battlefield Park Superintendent Ed Clark doesn't get to tell as often as he'd like. Both sides taking up, you know, their, their previous positions and um, marching across the field instead of this time uh, not in anger and not with, um, you know, bloodshed on their mind, but with peace and reconciliation in their mind. And, 
instead of meeting with arms, they met with handshakes and um, very uh, moving and stirring and very meaningful to those veterans. More about how the 1911 Peace Jubilee came to be in a few moments. But first, to appreciate how extraordinary the event was, you have to understand what happened during the First Battle of Manassas, or Bull Run as it's also known, 50 years earlier. At the beginning of the Civil War, you know, after Lincoln is, um, is elected and Fort Sumter occurs and he calls all of the troops, there was, I think, great excitement, both in the North and the South, for what was coming. They ended up meeting here, um, as they said at the time, uh, on the plains of Manassas. And what both sides uh, endured that day, on that July 21st day, shocked the nation. Families brought their children and their picnic lunches uh, from as far away as D.C. to sit and watch the spectacle of overwhelming force from the north taking on the ragged band from the south or the plantation owners here believing that the show of southern pride and and dedication to state and this new idea of the new confederate states of america would overwhelm uh, the forces of the union certainly no one believed in their heart of hearts at least these people with their picnic lunches that americans would be killing americans right in front of their eyes what ended up in a very resounding confederate victory and humiliating um, Union defeat uh, shocked the nation. Uh, this uh, was, up until that time in American history, the bloodiest day, the uh, largest number of casualties in, in all of American history. And it really uh, deflated that notion that this was going to be a glorious, quick, and relatively bloodless war. Soldiers were pining to be there. They were afraid if they missed this one battle, they would miss the entire war. But when you read those accounts of the soldiers who were there that time, and you go back through their diaries and you read their letters, the tenor of, of their comments and their perspective changes dramatically. And the, the sights that they witness and that they retell really shows how deeply um, that experience affected those soldiers. George Carr Round, the Union officer who proclaimed peace with his signal rockets in Raleigh at the end of the war, was not at the First Battle of Manassas, although he too was profoundly affected by his experiences throughout the conflict. He was stationed in Manassas for a while later in the war to defend the strategic railroad junction. Round became a lawyer in New York and returned to settle in Manassas in 1868. Although some of the locals dismissed him as a carpetbagger at first, Round became a pillar of the community. He named the streets. So we're at the corner of Grant and Lee. We're at the corner of Grant and Lee so that they would forever meet in peaceful accord. Uh, that was very important to him. The inscription on his tombstone at Arlington National Cemetery hails round as the originator of the Peace Jubilee. But the idea for the event actually came from D.H. Russell, who was among the last Confederate troops to surrender in Greensboro. Russell was wounded at First Manassas, and after the war he became a newspaper editor and civic leader in Anderson, South Carolina. On January 2, 1911, Russell wrote a letter to the editor of the Washington Post. Bob Root reads from that letter. The 21st day of next July will be the 50th anniversary of the First Battle of Manassas, and it has occurred to me that it would be a gracious thing, intending to promote peace and good feeling, if Congress would make an appropriation to bring together in a national encampment on that celebrated field the survivors of both armies who actually participated in the battle. It would be a spectacle that could not take place in any other country on the globe, 
and would have a good effect in promoting the rising tide of peace and goodwill that seems to be prevailing over the country and in wiping out any remaining animosities. What do you think of it? George Round thought it was a great idea. And it was the old veteran, not Congress, who turned it into a reality just half a year after reading Russell's letter in the newspaper. A remarkable feat, says Ed Clark. He pulled all of these people together, and if you think about trying to get, you know, in rural Virginia at that time, this many people to transport that far, to get that message out that far, to coordinate all of that, it took an, it must have taken a tremendous amount of effort and energy. But I think, you know, his whole life was an example of that, that energy. He was very powerful and very wealthy at that time, and he could write to people across the nation and say, you know what we're going to do, and we need the money to do it. It was so successful that many of the later events um, of that 50th anniversary throughout America really modeled itself after what was done here at Manassas. Hundreds of veterans gathered on the hilltop where the tide of the battle had turned, where Confederate General Stonewall Jackson earned his nickname, and where the blood-curdling rebel yell was heard for the first time. This time, the former foes embraced. They shared a picnic lunch. Then they headed to the courthouse in town to see the President of the United States, William Howard Taft. If you can imagine being on the field with people who you were shooting at 50 years before, and now you're old and grizzled and probably walking with a cane, and shaking hands with someone, looking them in the eye, and realizing, well, we both survived... We can honor each other's dedication. We can honor each other's service. And we can look at each other as veterans, American veterans, uh, and move forward. To bring this often overlooked moment in history to life for a modern audience, Elston combined characters from past and present to play out scenes on the old courthouse lawn, 100 years to the day after the original event. It's a kind of environmental impact piece of theater and history that I've sort of been dreaming about for this community for a long time. So when I was asked to consider writing this piece, it didn't take me long to sort of have at least the bones of what I wanted to do together. Making it an enjoyable piece of theater was another step. And so the investment of comedy, the investment of particular characters and their stories so that we are pulled in and become interested, the... uh, mixing of environment and then and now. All of that, we hope, creates a a tapestry, a mosaic of celebration. America, we look to thee with thanks to those who made us free. North, south, east, west, all look at the Civil War, it's difficult to celebrate. You can commemorate. You can uh, you know, keep memories alive. You can talk about the stories uh, that weave together. But you can't really celebrate such a bloody war. You can celebrate the peace jubilee. You can celebrate people coming together and those veterans meeting again in their dotage to hold hands, to put their arms around each other, to stand around a campfire, which they did here on the lawn. We're sitting in the courthouse in Manassas City now, where the event happened in 1911. And the lawn was dotted with campfires for an entire week as the veterans didn't leave this property. And they told stories, and they laughed, and they sang, and they uh, really had a jubilee. Colonel Berkeley, you live in Virginia all your life? Heck no. Not yet, anyway. 
<laughs> we have been remembering those bygone days today, and Manassas has offered us so many fond memories to oh, carry on with us forever. Fond memories, fond memories. The last time I was down here, my tent leaked something awful. Well, didn't you fix it? Couldn't fix it in the rain. Well, why didn't you fix it when the sun was shining? It didn't leak then. When I did my research, the best research that I found and enjoyed, there were wonderful letters and diary entries from people, but it was the journalists. Competing reporters were capturing the events surrounding the Peace Jubilee in that turn-of-the-century journalistic voice I'm standing in. Manassas! The 21st of July, 1911. Which is very evocative. And I enjoyed that and thought, well, if we do need a narrator to sort of weave us through this piece, wouldn't this journalist from 1911 be good? After the strains of America put a spark to the kindling of patriotic fervor, at last our anticipation for this great event is satisfied. Masses have come here to celebrate this national jubilee of peace. In addition to the 1911 journalist, we have a 2011 journalist, who I hope speaks in a very different sort of rhythm. 150 years after the first battle of the Civil War, and 100 years since the veterans of that battle met yet again, we gathered to recreate the peace and celebrate our nation, and in the spirit of common bonds, the strength of that nation. And they have their own stage, so they can comment on the action. And then we have the action itself. You know, we have this dance among the people. We have these scenarios among this crowd. We have the President of the United States coming down Grant Avenue in his car, being led by children of the community. I think it's so iconic to have President Taft, the United States President, on the stage with the last Virginia governor who had served in the Confederacy on that stage together. As promised, folks, the President of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, when we look back on that period of 50 years ago, a feeling of sadness must overcome us. For that is a period we dislike to look back upon. A period of sorrow and discouragement reviving in our minds all the strain and trial of that awful struggle. I do not know if it might have been achieved in some more peaceful way. I do not know if we could have found an alternate path. But I do know that in that struggle, each side showed a strength which neither side had known that it possessed, developed a strength of character before the entire world that the world had never witnessed before. It is my greatest ambition as President of these United States to do everything sensible and everything reasonably possible to bring the two sections of this country even closer together, if such be possible. To make them feel in the South as well as in the North that the Supreme Court of the United States is their Supreme Court. The Congress, their Congress. The President of the United States, their President. Elston and Clark say the Peace Jubilee, proposed by one-time rebel soldier D.H. Russell and organized by his former enemy George Round, was an expression of a new spirit in America. It showed how much the country had changed in the 50 years since the Civil War began. We were moving as most of the world was, at least the Western world, 
into industrialization, moving out of the agrarian culture of the 19th century and into the industrial culture of the 20th century. And we were, as a nation, the center of invention on the globe. And so it was a time of, we as a people can make anything happen. Time of hope, uh, there was a sense of identity that was new. We were trying to figure it out in the 1800s. Identity was by state. And the Civil War made us as a nation say, well, what's our identity as a nation? Well, I think the country was, was still struggling in many ways with a lot of the aftermath and a lot of um, what came out of that war. Uh, this is 50 years later, and so those young you know, teenagers and 20-somethings were now elderly men. And I think as generations pass on, I think there is a desire to uh, connect with them and to you know, learn from them and share their experiences before they're gone. And you know, I, I think that might be a part of this. We all know there is a linger of aspects of the Civil War, unfortunately, uh, in our society, there are echoes. But it's not the predominant voice. The predominant voice in America is about unification. The predominant voice in America is about how we came together. The Manassas Peace Jubilee attracted national, even international, attention and inspired similar events, including one that drew more than 50,000 Civil War vets to Gettysburg in 1913. Those old soldiers saw their united nation enter World War I, the war to end all wars, as it was called. And, as we know, it did not end wars. So, did these peace jubilees have any lasting effect? There was certainly an impact on our knowledge of the war. Fifty years after the war, uh, just as there was again a hundred years after the war, a real push to publish, to research, to interview, um, so that these memories aren't forgotten. So it's important, and I think in many ways, and this is one of the reasons we work so hard in terms of historic preservation, is that that is in itself a legacy for peace and understanding and a better understanding of who we are and who we are to each other. Americans' perception of history is very narrow, and we, in most cases, only teach you know, the, the very highest points, you know, or the highest of the high points of history, and there's so much to it, um, not just the, you know, on a stage in July in 1911, politicians got up and say and said, you know, important things. It's all of those individuals, all of their individual personal stories. That emotion that must have been played out uh, was tremendous, and um, the the things that were demonstrated there, the the reconciliation, the recognition of peace, the recognition of union is so moving and powerful, I think, but it's one that is lost in the, um, to, at least nationally, lost to so much of, that has occurred since then. And so I, I think it's, it's so important at these times, at these you know, milestones, these markers in history, to recall these events and remind America of places we have been and great things we have done. I would love to be able to say that there was actual lasting attention 
to this idea of peace and love and unity. And that we as a community put that on our shoulders as what we would model for the rest of the world. And I'm afraid that we as a society and as a people and as a race and a species maybe haven't yet come to that particular place in our lives yet. For Peace Talks Radio, I'm Steve Pendleberry. You can find links to more information about the Peace Jubilee celebration of both 1911 and its commemoration in 2011 at our website, peacetalksradio.com, where you can also find more about the World War I Christmas Truce of 1914, which we talked about earlier with author Stanley Weintraub, all at peacetalksradio.com. And peacetalksradio.com is where you can hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003, order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast and our newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. Please consider a donation. It really will help. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the FNS Fund of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Special thanks to Steve Pendleberry, too, for years of support of all kinds, and for today's report on the Manassas Peace Jubilee. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.